You're listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. Welcome back to The Buzz. In this episode, we're asking some explosive questions all about volcanoes. We're going to be joined by Marissa, who has just finished her PhD, and we're really excited about that. Um, But first, Joe, I've got some questions for you. We're going to be playing Volcano or Volcayes. Fantastic. Yeah. Bit of a running theme here from the last episode. Yeah, I don't know what other topics we can do with knowing. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I need to find. Um, But they're going to be some true or false statements, and you just have to say if it's Volcano, false, or Volcayes, true. Okay. (laughs) I'll try not to get too There's six questions, I think. On average, we're getting about four out of six right, or five out of eight or whatever. So that's the the benchmark. Here we go. Volcano or Volcayes. The country with the most volcanoes is Japan. Japan. Ooh. Um, I, that sounds like it could be correct, so I'm going to say it's a, a volcano. Yes, true. Incorrect. It's a volcano. Oh. False. I think it's second. America oh. is numero one. It's a little bit of a trick question. It's not, though. It's not, but it's a little bit. Right, so it, it doesn't really count. It does count. It counts all of all, uh, the overseas territories of America, which include loads of islands, which are actually made from volcanoes. Oh, I so, see. All the atoll islands and stuff. So right. that's why America's number one. Yeah. So not a good start. But we move on. Things can only get better. Yes, correct. But not. you're not going to point for that. <laughs> <laughs> the word volcano comes from the Roman god Vulcan. I think this is true because that makes a lot of sense because he the, the roman god was to do with fire wasn't he so i'm going to say volke yes you are correct and he was to do with fire yes. uh he um i think something to do with the sun as well i don't know but yes you are correct volke yes that is one correct mark okay question number three or statement number three volcanic lava's temperature can reach yep. 1000 250 degrees Celsius. Um, that sounds like it could be true, although you could you could tell me any high number and I don't think that might be true. I'm going to say, it's so specific, I'm going to say it's, it's true. It's a volcano, yes. You are correct, it's a volcano, yes. Get in there. Lava can reach a temperature of 1,250, which is far hotter than any other place on Earth. Apart from inside the earth, but on the surface of the earth. <laughs> okay, moving on to statement number four. You have got two out of three so far. The planet Earth has over one million underwater volcanoes. One million. Wow. Well, I, I know it has a lot of underwater, but that is so many. So many that I'm going to say it's a, a volcano. It's false. I'm afraid it's a volcano. Yes, it has it? over one million wow. underwater volcanoes. Yeah, that is a lot. lot. That is a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. Okay, we've got two left. You need to get both of them right to keep your average going. Okay. Okay. On average, one thousand people a year die from volcanic eruptions. Oh wow! I would, that sounds like a lot. I'm, I'd, I'd have assumed. I'd have heard of people dying in that way um i'm gonna say that's a a volcano or a a false cano if you will oh very good uh you are correct uh the the actual number is 540 though right so it's quite high 
um, as we'll probably hear in the episode, um, often it's like thousands at once. And then right, there'll be okay. periods where there's no deaths. Mm. And then there'll be thousands again. So yeah. Are these, these facts true? Cause... <laughs> they are true. Um, it's an average figure over the past so many years. Yeah. Where some years you'll have tens of thousands of people and some years you'll have no one. So um, right. it's 540. But you were right. So correct. Well done. This is the final one. You need to get this right to Come keep... On keep going on the average score the most distant point from the center of the earth is a volcano what the the most distant what from the center of the earth the most distant point of the earth of the earth yeah right okay is a volcano surely that would be top of mount everest wouldn't it uh based on that i'm gonna say volcano you are incorrect. Oh. It's okay, yes, yes. I thought I'd trick you with that one. Oh. So, man, average, most question. people assume it is, um, but it's not. It's not. Right. It's, I think wow. it's the highest point. Yep. But from the center of the earth, it's not. Because near the equator um, is further away from the further away from the center of the earth, the, the equator is. Right. Pretty sure. I hope so. Um, and so uh, the the top of Chim I'm going to pronounce this wrong Chimborazo Chimborazo oh yeah I was, I was going to say that oh wait okay uh, I think that's in Ecuador um, that's really close to the equator and it's a dormant volcano so it wasn't active but it's, not, it's now not but top of that is further away from the centre of the earth than Mount Everest wow yep. I'll have to take your word for it well yep uh, that is definitely true <laughs> <laughs> um so you got, I think, just three out of six, Joe. How does it feel? Ah, oh, um, well, half of those you said were trick questions, so I don't, I don't feel too bad. Well, okay. I fear well, I'm going to learn quiz. more in the in the interview with Marissa. Yes, so. I'm sure, and I fear for the next time you do a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Payback. yes, exactly. Uh, but yes, now moving on to a real expert in volcanoes, Joe. We have got this interview with Marissa. Uh, so I thought I'd start off today by asking, what is a volcano? Um, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, it's really nice to be on this side uh, of the microphone uh, answering questions in a podcast. Um, so what is a volcano? Uh, volcanoes are sort of a pathway between the inside of the Earth or even another planet, uh, which we'll come on to later, um, and the surface of that uh, planet or the Earth. Um I think a lot of the things that we see in the news will be about volcanic eruptions uh, and these big dramatic events. Um, not all volcanoes are always active. They're not always erupting. You can get dormant volcanoes. Um, and yeah, I suppose on Earth, there are these uh, structures which are made of solidified magma uh, or lava once it's been erupted onto the surface. And they come in lots of different shapes and sizes, depending on what the chemistry is of that lava or magma. Um, and yeah, they have lots of different styles of activity. So yeah, I'd say the general answer would be they're a pathway between the inside of the Earth to the Earth's surface, uh, and they're built by uh, the eruption of lava. Uh, you mentioned eruptions a bit there. Um, so why do volcanoes erupt? Uh, yeah, good question. So I think some important context to set up for this, uh, for this episode would be to say that we're stood on a solid layer on the Earth called the crust, uh, but underneath that is this sort of semi-molten, semi-solid uh, material called the mantle. 
um, and pockets of the mantle can occasionally melt uh, to form magma. Uh, and this can happen for lots of different reasons. So the mantle moves very slowly over geological time. And when I say that, I mean over the course of millions of years. Um, and when this mantle moves around or when it convects, um, some parts can rise um, and this can lead to decompression melting. Um, you can also get um, things like water added into the mantle. Um, so if you have, say, a tectonic plate boundary um, where you have one piece of the crust going underneath the other, you can introduce new material into the mantle, uh, such as water and other volatile elements. Um, and this, again, can cause the mantle to melt. Um, and also there are lots of radioactive elements uh, within the Earth's mantle. Again, this can cause heating. As those radioactive elements break down, that can cause the mantle to melt. So lots of different ways you can get pockets of melt in the mantle. Um, and this magma is less dense than the crust. So it rises through the crust. Um, and that's where you get um, these spots where this magma erupts as lava. And then that's where you get a volcano forming. Cool. So it sounds like um, not all volcanic eruptions are the same. So it's not always this massive explosion that you see on you know, disaster films, but sometimes it can just be lava spewing out, is that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I suppose going back to the idea of the tectonic plates again, um, as some important background, the Earth's crust is split into several uh, tectonic plates um, and there are different boundaries between these tectonic plates. So sometimes they move apart from each other, uh, like they are at Iceland, um, and you get uh, lava rising quite passively, I'd say, um, just like outpourings, uh, say, onto the ocean floor. Um, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, I guess, you have uh, subduction zones, and that's where one crust is going underneath, one piece of crust is going underneath the other, um, and you're getting uh, melt rising through the crust from that. Um, and then, I suppose, to relate this to earthquakes as well, the plates can move side by side that causes friction that's how you get earthquakes so a lot of these these features the fundamental science behind it is to do with tectonic plates is it ever possible for us to predict when an eruption might might happen um oh that's a that's a big question volcanology <laughs> i'd say um that's yeah the million dollar question um i would say sort of so um there's lots of different volcano observatories across the world um, and most of them, you know, funding permitted, do a great job at monitoring different volcanoes. So there's lots of techniques that you can use. Um, you can use thermal imaging. So that's helpful because if there's um, a new injection of magma into the volcano, um, that will obviously produce like a big thermal anomaly. Um, you can also look at the ground deformation, um, for example, using seismometers. So if there's a new injection of magma, that might cause a small-scale earthquake to occur. Um, and also, when that magma is ascending through the crust, a big driver of that is um, gas exolving. So deep within the Earth's crust, uh, it's quite high pressure, and lots of gases stay uh, dissolved in the magma. But as that magma rises, the pressure drops, and those gases come out of solution. And that's essentially like opening your bottle of Coke and seeing that like fizz up. Um, and come out the top. Um, so monitoring the gases that are coming out of the volcano is really useful for understanding if there's been a new injection of magma. So I'd say there's lots of ways that you can predict when a volcano would erupt, um, but they are by nature very unpredictable. Um, 
you know, there can be, you know, textbook cases where it's like, oh, great, we've had an earthquake swarm. Oh, great, we've had increased sulfur dioxide coming out of the volcano. But those are all uh, best case scenarios. And it depends on how often a volcano observatory is making these measurements um, and, yeah, the equipment and how many people are studying these different signs. So hopefully, <laughs> sort of, in, a, in the best case scenario, yes. Sure. And uh, so in our last episode, we looked at dinosaurs and where they went extinct and there's a big meteorite. But mm. other theories might suggest that it was a volcanic eruption or a massive volcanic eruption. And often, I guess, we see links between volcanoes and the climate and, and kind of a massive eruption happening around the Earth kind of going through a period of kind of really big disruption. Um, does that happen? And if so, why does that happen? So I'd say... It's only a very small percentage of volcanoes that would be able to produce a large enough eruption um, and large enough amounts of gas and ash to contribute to actual changes to the Earth's climate. Um, so some class classic examples of this would be, I think it was about 70,000 years ago, the eruption of Toba. Um, it's thought that the amount of um, ash that was released from that sort of reached the higher levels of the atmosphere and kind of created like a blanket around the earth, if you can kind of picture that. Um, and that led to what's called a volcanic winter for about three years. Um, I think the recorded temperature was about one to 1 1.5 degrees cooler than expected. Um, there's also Mount Pinatubo, which erupted in 1991 uh, in Indonesia. And again, a similar sort of effect where all that ash reached the higher levels of, I think the stratosphere um, and that uh, resulted in less of the sun's radiation reaching the earth it was reflected back into space instead um, and that led to some cooling of the earth but i'd say these eruptions are very very rare um, so we shouldn't be worried right now about them uh i guess that's quite hard to say sure. um yeah i guess I, I know there's a lot of people are constantly asking questions about say yellowstone sure uh, because that has a very large scale uh, it's a very large scale caldera um, so that has a very large cavity under the volcano that could fill up with magma. Um, and if that were to collapse and erupt, that would produce a lot of gas and ash. Um, but again, it comes back to the to the monitoring techniques. But I think these things are very... Uh, I think the human the human brain isn't very good at thinking about geologic time. Uh, a lot of these processes occur over hundreds of million millions of years uh, or billions of years. Um, they're very catastrophic events. Uh, they're not happening every 10 years. Mm. Um, so I think it's quite hard for humans to comprehend that these processes are very slow or they can be very sudden. You know, it's, it sounds quite contradictory that they could take millions of years to happen, but then when they do happen, they're very sudden and can have big effects. But I don't lose sleep over whether or not <laughs> Yellowstone's going to erupt. That, that's good to know. That's reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> and thinking about the consequences of an eruption, uh, if there was to be an eruption, maybe a, a super volcano erupted, what kind of uh, impact could that have on people's everyday lives? I'm kind of thinking with my limited knowledge of kind of the Iceland volcano that caused a lot of travel disruption a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose, uh, are you thinking of the Eyjafjallajökull? Yeah, I didn't from, want to try and <laughs> pronounce yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from about 10 years ago. Yeah, so I guess that's the classic case study um, of how air travel was disrupted. So yeah, I'd say that's a, 
a key short-term effect there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of economic impacts of that. And also in terms of aircraft safety, um, the effect of volcanic ash is actually a topic uh, that's being studied at Manchester now, uh, looking at how ash can move into an aeroplane jet. And if those, if that ash, you know, melts, does that affect the jet engine and so on? So yeah, that's a very real concern. Um, I'd say, yeah, other things in the short term would be uh, things like water quality. So if ash or those gases dissolve in water, that's, uh, that has a very dangerous impact on people's lives. Uh, there can be damage to crops. Um, you know, the buildup of ash, like uh, you can get metres and metres of ash uh, built up from one eruption. And if you picture that on top of a car, on top of a building, that affects the stability of those. So again, a lot of economic damage there. Um, and also from the air quality. Um, so there's quite a few researchers up at Durham who are looking at how effective different masks are um, at protecting people from volcanic ash. Um, so yeah, research that has been very relevant in the past couple of years when people have been thinking about masks for COVID as well. Um, yeah, so it, it it sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds like a lot. It sounds like a big disaster movie that there's just a lot of damage to lots of things. Um, but yeah, I guess that there can be some benefits to volcanoes you know a lot of people do live quite near them they're a big tourist attraction as well so yeah i'd say it seems quite uh hunky-dory until something bad happens in this season of the buzz we're asking our academics for their favorite things about our favorite city which is of course manchester so what's your favourite thing to do in Manchester? These are somehow harder than the science questions. Um, yeah. I'd say my favourite thing to do in Manchester is going around all of the great restaurants and cafes that are here. Um, I mean, before I was in Manchester, I was in Lancaster and Durham, which are quite small cities. They didn't have much variety of food. But I love in Manchester, there's so many different food places to try um, and also different uh, festivals. So I think... I don't think it's happened yet, but last summer there was um, an Italian food festival, nice. which was amazing. Um, and also like a Eastern European Hungarian one, Ooh, um, wow. which was also really fun. Got to try lots of different foods there that I hadn't before. Um, so yeah, probably just trying, trying different food places. That's really good. And um, do you have a favourite Manchester-related person? Is it, is, it, is it cheesy to talk about my supervisor at no. Manchester? Okay. No, all right. Um, perhaps this is a bit of a curveball. Um, and I'm sorry to like, you know, people who love Alan Turing, but I'm sure lots of people have said Alan Turing before or will do in future. Um, I'd just like to give a shout out to my supervisor at Manchester. She's called Katie Joy. She's one of those powerhouses of a person. Um, she's been to Antarctica wow. like two or three times to hunt for meteorites. <laughs> like cool. she goes out there for like two or three months at a time, lives in a tent the whole time. Um, and yeah, looks scours glaciers and snowfields for meteorites um she's also been to chile uh some deserts in chile to look for meteorites as well um and yeah as well as being an amazing lunar researcher um she's also very passionate about encouraging diversity and inclusivity um in our field um which i know is something that's uh definitely come to light a lot more over the past couple of years um and i just did I really admire that she gives up a lot of time um, to put that at the forefront of, uh, to really prioritise that and to make sure that that's something that is 
being improved continually within our department uh, and within planetary science and geology as a whole. It's a great answer. Um, what would you say is your favourite Manchester building? Uh, it's got to be the John Rylands Library on Deansgate. Um, I don't know much about architecture, but I just remember wandering around Manchester City Centre when I first moved here and just being surprised at this gothic Victorian sort of uh, building slap bang in the middle of Deansgate. So, you know, I, I do think it looks a doubt of place. You know, <laughs> you've got like a, a, a slug and lettuce nearby, <laughs> um, other bars and stuff. And then you've just got this beautiful building with such like intricate detail on it. Um, so, yeah, would definitely recommend going because I think it's free to go. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, the second mention of the John Rylands Library, yeah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, it's winning then. It's winning the, the poll. Um, <laughs> this might be the hardest question of all, actually. Uh, what is your favourite place to eat in Manchester? Okay. Um, I am really big into vegan food. Mm-hmm. So I'm not vegan all the time, but I really like vegan junk food. Um, so I really like V-Rev's Vegan Diner, which is in Northern Quarter. Yep. Um I've taken a few friends there who are um, devout carnivores um, and even they find something that they like there. Um, also, there's a cute wall of people's dogs on there. Like oh. if you bring your dog there, they'll take a picture and put it on the wall. Um, so, yeah, it's a feast for the taste buds and for people who like to look at dogs. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> this one's a little tricky. Can you describe Manchester in three words? Um, okay. I would say, um, loud (laughs) in terms of music and also the people, but in a good way. Mm -hmm. Um, friendly, like it's one of those cities where you can just walk down the street or sit on the bus and people will start talking to you. And also very spirited. I feel like yeah, again, when you wander around, people are very proud to be in Manchester and they love lots of things about the city, which just makes a really nice vibe living here. So we've been talking uh, exclusively about Earth volcanoes, and I know mm-hmm. your research specifically looks at lunar volcanoes. And so in my head, um, volcanoes are these kind of really hot things and mm. the moon isn't very hot, at least to my knowledge. And so how, how does the moon have volcanoes? Uh, yeah, uh, so it's a good question. It's something that I get asked a lot when I'm talking to people about what I do for my PhD. Um, so the Earth and the Moon actually have quite similar histories. Uh, I mean, first of all, going back over four billion years ago, um, they probably formed uh, at the same time uh, from a giant impact scenario, uh, which meant that the Moon and Earth have a similar composition in some ways, um, but the Moon is obviously smaller. So this applies to both of them. Um, It's thought that they both started out as a magma ocean. Um, So a molten body of material uh, where material was being accreted or like gathered onto this ball of molten material. Uh, But as that cools, um, different minerals will crystallize out and they'll sink towards the center of this molten ball. And that will form the core of your your earth or of your moon. Um, And then you'll be left with a sort of liquid mantle and then the outside will cool to form a crust so a lot of um the planets in the inner solar system are thought to have had this same process so mercury uh, venus and mars um have some sort of volcanic features on them 
um, which is really cool from a volcanologist's perspective, you know, to sure. see what volcanism is like on other planets. Um, so the moon doesn't have active volcanoes now, but it's thought that about three billion years ago, when the mantle was still hot, when it was still uh, molten and had pockets of melt within it, that that's when it would have had volcanic eruptions. Cool. And I guess why, uh, why, why, what's the importance of studying volcanoes on the moon? Uh, yeah, so I, I like to think of it as when you're thinking about these different planetary bodies, you're sort of seeing different sandboxes or different simulations that are parallel to Earth. Specifically in the case of the moon, uh, I mentioned that the Earth and the moon have a shared origin through a giant impact. Through studying volcanoes on the moon and understanding what, say, gases uh, drove those eruptions and how much lava or magma there was, you can sort of unpick and understand what the inside of the moon is like. And if you're doing that, it's sort of parallel to what the inside of the Earth must be like. Um, so, yeah, it can tell us a lot about what volcanism is like on Earth and also how the Earth formed. I'd never really thought about uh, volcanoes on the moon before. What was it that made you want to study that area? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I did geology for my undergrad and I had no idea until the second year of my course. Um, it was just a GIS module, so geographic information systems. So using things like ARC, um, we were looking at some images, it must have just been on like the NASA website, um, and trying to identify like craters on the moon. And then just during that, uh, during that lecture, I just started looking, playing around with all these images and started seeing like, oh, if I click this box, this shows me where there are volcanic vents on the moon. Oh, if I click this box, there are pyroclastic deposits on the moon, um, which are deposits from explosive eruptions. We get them on Earth as well. And I went, that, that was just a really strange epiphany. Um, <laughs> and then I started uh, talking to some different lecturers around the UK, just emailing them. And it's quite a small field of geology. Um, compared to like uh, studying volcanoes on Earth. But I think, yeah, I think it just really interested me thinking about how these different planets can be similar to Earth, but slightly different, and the way that the volcanoes are different on those planets and what that can tell us about each of the bodies. And so in terms of studying uh, volcanic activity on the moon, uh, is it through just by looking at scans of the moon surface or do you have like samples that you can kind of examine as well? Uh, so I've not been looking at samples, but there's, uh, I think, about 350 kilograms of rock that was returned from the Apollo missions uh, in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of that material is still being studied now. Uh, and in fact, a lot of it has been locked up. Um, there was this big pro project called the Apollo next generation sample analysis, uh, which actually your guest from the previous series, uh, Nat Curran, is working on, yeah. which is really exciting uh, to think that there's boxes of moon rock that were returned and they've mm. not been opened for 50 years. Wow. Um, and scientists sort of kept those as a, yeah, a, a nice future memory box, I guess. <laughs> sure. Um, when instruments improved, people could open those boxes, see what they could find uh, as different analytical techniques improved um, but my main method would be uh, yeah, looking at images of these pyroclastic deposits on the moon and also using computer models um, so as I said the moon is not volcanically active now 
so it's hard to picture what these volcanic eruptions would, would look like. So my PhD was looking at using models for terrestrial volcanic eruptions and adapting those for the moon. So key things I'd be changing would be gravity, for one, uh, the composition of the different magmas, uh, the amounts of gas, the types of gas, um, and yeah, sort of seeing what, what the eruptions would be like, how explosive they would be, how far uh, volcanic rocks would travel from the vent onto the surface of the moon. Um, so yeah, sort of play, playing around with different parameters in a model and seeing how that would affect an eruption. Going back to back to Earth, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I was just thinking about the, the different types of volcanoes there are. Am I right in thinking there's quite a lot that are underwater? Yeah, yeah. So um, going back to when we were talking about the plate boundaries, when you get those um, plates that are moving apart and the upwelling of magma through those, uh, that's called a divergent plate boundary. Um, and they're also called um, like mid-ocean ridges. Um, so if you were to look at a topographic map of Earth, you would see um, big ridges along like the centres of oceans, um, which you wouldn't expect. Uh, at least I didn't <laughs> really expect to see that. Um, but yeah, that's where you get like these small scale volcanoes, I'd say. Um, and yeah, they're all in this big long line to mark the, the boundary uh, between the tectonic plates. Are we experiencing more volcano eruptions today than we have in the past? Um, I would say at any one time, you've probably got about 50 volcanoes on Earth that are erupting. Um, a good website to check this, I think it's called the Smithsonian Volcano Observatory. Um, they have a big list and a map, a global map of which volcanoes are erupting uh, right now. Um, I'd say we're not in a particularly active period of volcanic activity on Earth. Um, yeah. Would you say we're better prepared for future eruptions than we have been previously? Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. You know, I'm quite an optimist and seeing even just the work that's going on in Manchester within my research group, seeing how uh, the research we do is then communicated to different volcano observatories around the world. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's a really nice process to see. Um, so there's a few people at Manchester who look at... Um, sulfur dioxide so that's a gas that comes out of volcanoes um, and the ways that we can monitor sulfur dioxide because um, it's thought that if there's a big spike in sulfur dioxide that there might be a new injection of magma that magma might be moving towards the surface and that might be a key sign that a volcanic eruption is about to happen um, so yeah there's a lot of people at Manchester looking at that now and they've been working with different volcano observatories around the world, such as at Etna in Italy um, and also Montserrat um, in the Caribbean. I think there's a lot of active research looking at ways that we can predict volcanic eruptions. And there are really good communication networks between researchers, but also with the people living on the ground. Um, you know, I'd say that's that's the key priority in all of this. Um, you know, research is cool, uh, but there's no use in doing it if it's not reaching the right people. Um, and I would say that a lot of volcano observatories around the world do have great communication networks, um, different, say, alert levels. Um, and yeah, communicating that to the public is, is, is key. And also like a big area of research in the UK as well, um, how people can do that the most, in the most effective ways. 
Sure. And so um, we know, let's say we know a volcano is about to erupt or we have a little bit of time to know it's going to erupt. Is it then just getting people away from the eruption zone so they not get affected? Or can we actually kind of prevent a volcano erupting? Was that a bad idea? Um, so there's been a few techniques people have used over the years to try and stop the flow of lava. Um, so I went to Etna in Italy a few years ago and saw these structures called lava tubes. And this is where the sides and the roof of the lava flow have solidified um, and you get molten lava running through the centre. Um, now the roof of this tube can collapse um, and you can see the molten lava flowing within it. And yeah, I think the it's, it's called INGV. It's the Italian Volcano Observatory. Um, I think they tried... Um, putting like cement blocks within this lava tube to try and block the flow to stop the flow reaching uh, the, a town that was downstream of the summit um, and and it sort of worked but the lava just redirected a different way um, so I, I'd, I'd say you can't you can't really stop these things um, there have been a few techniques like that uh, or even like some uh, some there's some cases where people have tried to like use explosives at the vent to try and <laughs> to try and redirect the lava, and again, mixed success because that lava is just going to end up somewhere else, um, or that eruptions, yeah, the eruption products and ash are just going to end up going somewhere else. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there's lots of other sci-fi options that sure. have been <laughs> tried, um, but I think the main thing is identifying and mapping how the lava would move uh, down the flanks of the volcano and understanding where the populations are and how best to move those and relocate them quite quickly. Um, so, you know, I know there's lots of um, sort of phone apps or like text alerts that are used uh, mostly as the, as the quickest way to get information out to people, but also educating people from a young age, knowing that you live five kilometers from a volcano, a volcano might erupt. You may have to move at short notice is, is just an important message to get across. So, uh, so have you got any advice for any aspiring volcanologists? Yeah, I, I would start by saying that volcanology, I think, is one of the coolest parts of geology. Um, I really think that it encompasses and links to a lot of other areas of geology. So uh, like I said right at the start of the episode, volcanoes really are the link between, say, the Earth's mantle um, and also its atmosphere. You know, you're getting material from inside the Earth, sometimes tens to hundreds of kilometers deep uh, coming to the surface and then you're getting that volcanic ash or volcanic gases moving into the atmosphere of the earth so it's connecting all parts of the Earth's system there which i think is really cool you can pick which aspect you're most interested in and really learn a lot from it um i would say yeah it's geology's quite a funny subject in that it's not taught at many schools at a level or gcse um, so not that many people find out about it um, I sort of found out about it from my geography teacher at school and yeah just sort of it's sort of like if you picture physics chemistry and biology as a Venn diagram I always think of geology as like the middle of that Venn diagram because it encompasses lots of areas um, of other sciences as well um, which is great if you're interested in chemistry but want to do geology or look at volcanoes that's great that's totally applicable uh, but say if you're more interested in biology um you could go down the fossil route so i, I just yeah geology is cool volcanoes are really cool 
but yes, I feel like I've plugged geology on the whole there. Um, but I think volcanology is a really cool crossover between a lot of important areas within geology. And if anyone has questions about, you know, what does uh, the day in a volcanologist look like, uh, feel free to message me on, say, Twitter. Um, I'm sure my details can be in the episode description. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really odd seeing that geology and volcanology doesn't have much of a presence uh, before uh, university level. Um, so one thing I've been doing a lot of is um, some outreach. Um, in fact, I've been hosting my own podcast um, at Manchester called The Cosmic Cast. Um, and we talked to lots of different earth and planetary scientists from all levels in their academic career. Um, and the main thing that we're trying to do with that podcast is First of all, to find out about people's cool research, um, because especially in the field of planetary science and volcanology, you talk to people who are looking at moon rocks, traipsing up and down volcanoes. They, they, they just do so much cool stuff. Um, but also one thing we try to do is demystify academia and just show that people that go into geology or go into volcanology are just real people as well um, and try to make it seem less scary and more accessible. Um, so yeah would recommend um if you're looking to find out about people's different career paths into volcanology and um, that's also something we try to ask people as well a big thank you to marissa and good luck with your viva thank you for listening to this episode of the buzz on our next episode we're going to be exploring the uh, crazy world of ai artificial intelligence so stay tuned for that one you can find us on social media at UOM Sai Eng, and we're also on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can email us at fscmarketing at manchester.ac.uk. See you next time on The Buzz.